Danny Way, a rising junior at Glenwood Springs High School, will interview Sarah Loebman, an assistant professor in astrophysics at the University of California, Merced. Her primary research interests are in galaxy evolution, clustered star formation, and chemodynamics in the local universe. And the local universe is Milky Way and... And Andromeda, our nearest big neighbor, and the small galaxies that surround us. Good. We've already started. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She uses high-resolution galaxy simulations, survey data, and big data tools and techniques to conduct her research. She is also, and we always like to hear this, a devoted teacher and student advocate and is strongly committed to supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in astrophysics. So thank you so much for being with us, Sarah. And now, Danny will begin interviewing. So Sarah, how did you first become interested in physics or just the STEM field in general? Uh, So I think like many other people, popular media had an influence on me and also my family's love of looking at the sky. My father has long been very enthusiastic about space and, uh, you know, I felt a a deep love of talking about all things space-related with my family. Um, And I grew up with parents that watched uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. And so if I'm really honest with myself, a lot of my love came from hanging out and watching TV with them when I was very young. It didn't become kind of real to me, a real possibility of what I could learn, study, until I was a little bit older. But I think my first interests had roots there. (laughs) And when you were in high school, what did you expect you would do in the future? I didn't know what I would do. I think there were lots of things I wanted to do. I think one thing that's been very true throughout my life is that um, I, I easily fall down a rabbit hole of things that are interesting and exciting to me. And I love, you know, I love learning. I love, I love reading Wikipedia and getting lost for a long time. Uh, and so for me in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I found lots of interest in lots of different areas. And I wanted to go to a big university where I had lots of possibilities of what I could end up in. But I don't think in high school that I knew I wanted to be a physicist. I think that I had interest in the stars and I had interest in the world and I had interest in dancing. I had lots of different interests and I wanted to do it all. And I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to do a little bit of everything. And when you first became involved in physics, what intrigued you the most about it? So my route to physics is really through astronomy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that one of the things that I've really been most, what kind of has drawn me in, is seeing our connection to space on the whole and how the things that go into what makes up our bodies is generated in stars. And so I got really interested in the idea of that life could exist around other stars out there and how similar our sun was 
to other stars and to try to understand what the possibility is for funding life elsewhere. Um, so I, I think I came at it from a direction of connecting us to the larger context of the 100 billion other stars in our galaxy. So one of your research-based topics was radial migration. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's the idea that um, in prior to 2002, so really recently, um, our idea of where stars could be born in the Milky Way and where they would live throughout their life um, was kind of shaped by one set of theory that said that um, if you think of the Milky Way like a record, so the Milky Way has a disk to it, you could think of like a star being born along a groove in the record and that the star for most of its life, if it's a kind of a normal disk star, would follow that groove and not really move very much from the center of the Milky Way out. It would just kind of stay going along that same groove, maybe wobble a little bit, but most stars would kind of stay that way. But in 2002, um, Selwood and Binney wrote this paper about understanding that if stars were in just the right place relative to transient spiral arms, that that could cause stars to surf, in essence, um, and move outward across the disk or inward across the disk. And this is what we refer to as um, cold uh, torquing or radial migration. Um, and it's via this um, being in just the right place relative to the spiral arms, co-rotation re resonance, and it causes the stars to move vast distances in very short timescales. But the really cool thing about this process is that it's almost as if the star would jump grooves. And so if you look after a star, experienced radial migration, that most of the stars that have been through this process, not all, but most, would actually still be following that nice, neat circular orbit. So it would be hard to tell that it, from its dynamics, its movement alone, that it made this jump. And so we have to look for other ways of trying to measure that, looking for evidence in it. So I've looked in simulations in the past to try to see, like, well, what would we see in simulations for this? Um, and lots of other people have considered, say, looking at Milky Way data, what evidence could you see in the chemistry for stars? If, if stars where we live are what you would expect for their chemistry or are different, um, maybe indicating that they formed interior to where we are. You could also look at other things like ages, um, which is the source of the conference that I'm here for. Okay, and could you go a little bit further into why radial migration happens? Um, so it has to do with being in just the right place at just the right time relative to the spiral structure and such that the spiral structure captures the stars and um, traps them in a certain orbit. But the interesting thing about the spiral arms, these particular kinds of spiral arms, is that they're called transient spiral features. So they don't live forever. They fade away with time. So for a while, the stars will be captured and held in a way in just the right spot relative to the spiral arms. And the spiral arms will allow um, to the the these stars that happen to be in just the right place at just the right time to be captured, to kind of be slung shot back and forth across the arms, kind of making these kind of loops back and forth and back and forth between 
multiple arms. Um, but then, and that will cause them to be pulled outward or pulled inward through this interaction with the arms. But over time, the arms will fade away. And where the stars are um, at, at the moment that the arms fade away, they'll be left behind. Um, so it has to do with the interaction between the spiral arms and the stars themselves and how they get kind of held and in, in captured and held in this sweet spot for a while. Hmm. So how did you become interested in radial migration? Um, so I was extremely fortunate that when I was in graduate school, I happened to be just a couple years behind another graduate student who had run a simulation and he had found in his simulation that there were stars that were um, moving out, uh, outward and inward um, in a way that was consistent to matching expectations from radial migration. <clears throat> it was pretty close to when radial migration had been proposed in theory and he was working with someone who was a postdoc at the time who knew of the theory, had worked with, um, with Selwood and uh, was very excited to find this. And so they wrote a couple papers about it very quickly, um, thoroughly, quickly, deep, insightful um, stuff. But I was fortunate because this grad student happened to have an office right near mine and was a really good guy and give, you know, talked in the department about it. And man, was it exciting to me to think about the idea of something brand new that he had run the simulation and he had found and the way he described it of stars surfing through the Milky Way um, due to this interaction with spiral structure was just so appealing and so exciting to me. Um, I grew up in Southern California right next to the beach and saw people surf all the time and it was it it rung true to something that I was always fascinated and interested in. And I wanted to learn more, and he was an extremely nice, tolerant guy who let me, who, when I asked if he would explain his paper to me, he said, sure, let's go get a cup of coffee. And he sat down with his paper and talked through, and um, that is really just was a foundational moment to me. It was someone who was excited about their research and wanted me to know about it, and I felt really had access to it, you know? And so I, I feel really fortunate that he and the postdoc who he worked with, um, who has long been like a hero and mentor to me um, that they let me work with these simulations too and that's how I really began my research experience. So since radial uh, migration was simulated how did they set up those simulations so that it was accurate to the Milky Way and so that so that we could resolve radial yeah. migration yeah so um, I wasn't a part of setting up the simulation in the first place but what was really interesting and unique about this was that they were able, the design of the simulation was so that it was just forming a Milky Way by itself, not worrying about forming things kind of nearby, um, but instead just focused on what's going on inside the Milky Way. And so they were able to make a setup such that you could make it very high resolution in order to care about the dynamics of what's going on, in order to kind of s simulate and understand the small details inside the galaxy. So the setup of the simulation was that there was a dark matter halo that we think all galaxies live inside. So they set up an isolated dark matter halo and they put gas inside and the, they gave the whole system just a little bit of spin. And then the gas was able to cool and coalesce and stars to begin to form 
kind of inside out in this galaxy. Now, what's really unique about the simulation was that the gas was at very good resolution, and the stars that formed from the gas were at very good resolution. And because this system was by itself, you could just really understand the dynamics that were going on for the stars inside the galaxy, um, as it, we refer to this as secular processes. So all the movement of the stars inside the galaxy were due just to things that were happening inside the galaxy itself as it grew. And the setup of the simulation allowed gas to continually cool and cause more and more, we think, stars form from cold, dense gas. So throughout the course of the simulation, more and more stars kind of formed gas cooled and the, and the stars formed inside out. And it was just marginally stable enough such that these spiral arms could form and could form and then fade away, form and fade away. So it was by virtue of the setup of the simulation that there was good enough resolution that that you could see the dynamics of the stars, you could see the spiral structure and how it influenced the stars, the orbits of the stars. Um, but that was there were sacrifices that were made in order to have that set up. And of course, we couldn't understand what would happen, say, if a satellite galaxy came in and hit the disk. We couldn't, in that simulation, understand how it would modify the stars. But it did give a pristine, a beautiful view to see how the spiral structure that formed there influence the stars that form there at a much higher resolution than had ever been done before. So how exactly was it found in the simulation? So it wasn't expected that it would be found in this particular simulation. This particular simulation, they were just looking to understand how stars form in a Milky Way-like galaxy over time and in particular to pay attention to what we think happens a lot, which is kind of this inside-out disk formation, that stars first start forming in the center, and then over time the stars form further and further out in the disk. Um, what happened, though, was that this grad student, um, like all grad students, get deep into the data and spent a lot of time trying to understand what he was seeing. Um, and he noticed that there were a lot of stars that seemed to form at small radius, but that at the end of the simulation, we're in a very different place. And he wanted to understand what was happening. He wanted to understand if it was an error with the simulation or if it was some real physics behind it. And he went to this postdoc that he was working with, Victor de Batista, who said, oh, I know what that is. This is what was proposed by his thesis advisor. Um, it was one of the founding people behind this theory. And, and he said, I didn't expect to see this in the simulation. Um, so this, I think the simulation was run in 2009, and the theory was proposed in 2002. Um, and it just so happened that, um, that the simulation that was run would have just the right setup, such that radial migration occurred, wasn't expected at all. But the grad student digging at it really saw something unusual, brought it to the postdoc advisor, and the postdoc advisor said, oh, this is, I, I know from reading the literature, talking to my thesis advisor, what this is. Um, and so it was a lot of really nice, fortunate circumstances of being in the right place at the right time, learning and listening and talking to one another and really digging at the data that made it so that it was discovered what was going on in this simulation. So currently you are studying open star clusters. Could you please go into depth about what those are and how do you study them? 
So um, open clusters are groups of stars that are generally young that form together in the disk of the Milky Way. So uh, in all galaxies, actually, but we see them for sure inside the Milky Way. Um, we understand them to be either from as small as groups of ten, uh, 100 stars up to 10,000 stars that are forming in very small distances all together from a common reservoir of gas. So from one single giant molecular cloud. So uh, whether or not you realize that you've seen an open cluster before, because you've probably at some point in time been behind a Subaru car. Um, and the, and the, <laughs> the logo for Subaru is, um, you may have heard the name Pleiades before. It's Seven Sisters. Um, it is actually a collection of stars um, that is an open cluster. Um, it's fairly young and pretty close to us. Um, so these are kind of, we like to think of open clusters as building blocks of the disk. We think that many stars in a galaxy form inside these open clusters, but that the open clusters don't stay together through their whole life. They form together and then the clusters kind of disperse and stars go their separate way. Um, we have some indications that maybe the sun formed in an open cluster. Um, we think that many, many stars formed an open cluster. And one of the things I'm really interested in is seeing if we can figure out, you know, stars that form together, trace back the family history, find kind of the common point that they came from. And there's these great surveys that exist right now, observations of the Milky Way, where for the first time we have ways of trying to think about did these did stars spread out across, you know, regions in the sky? Could they have started together? And so I use simulations to look at stars that form together and what happens to them over time. Um, and so that's that. That's my connection to open cluster research. There are lots of people who look at open clusters in simulations and in observations. Um, my part in it is looking at um, cosmological simulations. So these are simulations that include other galaxies and um, have really good resolution as well. So kind of the next generation of simulations compared to the ones that I talked about before. Um, and for the first time in these simulations, we're starting to be able to resolve open clusters. But it's kind of the, um, it's the next generation, the kind of the fuzzy edge of what we can detect. And it's this exciting open opportunity um, for us to see what do we see inside of our simulations? And does that match what we see in observations? And what can we predict from our simulations? So you talked about how the stars are dispersed? Why does that happen? Well, that's a great question. Um, so there's lots of different things at play, lots of different physics in play. There's some stuff that's internal to the cluster. Um, and so we think that most, or at least some of these clusters are born what we refer to as bound, that their gravity between the stars really holds them together. But of course, they're born inside of a cloud. Now, there's lots of things that go on between stars um, in their lives, particularly young, massive stars have a lot of energy to them. And they'll, they'll have winds driving outward, and they'll have um, very, very energetic light that they produce that pushes outward. There's a lot of physics. And then, of course, stars can die, too, and explode. All that physics that those stars, when they're 
experience in the cluster environment can cause the massive energetic waves that push the gas out. And then once you remove the gas, it's like removing glue to the cluster. It changes how bound the clusters are. And then that in turn can cause the clusters to fall apart. That's internal processes, but there are of course external processes too. Just like when we talked about spiral structure before, um, we think the larger scale dynamics of the Milky Way itself um, could influence how long a star cluster lives. And that's one of the things that my group is working on, is looking at when you form a star cluster, we see them forming inside the spiral arms. And then this, the feedback from these clusters influences the spiral arms, causes them to kind of disintegrate a little bit, be rearranged a little bit. Um, and then that changing where the spiral arm is, in turn, shears and torques and pulls on these clusters and causes them to come apart as well. So internal processes and external processes pull these clusters apart. And one of the things that my grad students are looking at is like, well, how does it pull it apart? Does it, what directions do they get pulled apart? And can we see signatures and observations that match that? So you talked about the internal attraction between the stars and the clusters. Does that exist even after they disperse? So uh, again, great question. So um, we, that's one of the things we're really interested in is how long do the stars that were born together have kind of common motion and are close together? And certainly, even as the cluster becomes unbound, that there'll be some attraction, right? Because gravity is most effective on things that are close together. So even if they aren't, um, if individual stars aren't bound to one another so that they orbit around each other. So that's what we refer to as binary stars. Um, they still will be near by each other so that there will be some, they'll be moving in kind of a common gravitational field and influence one another in a small way. Um, it, we think that the gas that surrounds them probably, and kind of that they nurtured them, that they were born in, probably has plays a huge factor in how long they stay very close together. But that as they, the cluster comes apart, that certainly for a period of time, and we don't know exactly how long that period of time is, they will move in common directions and have common, common positions and velocities. Um, and that has a lot to do with the gravity between them a and the larger galactic field. And so how do you trace like sibling stars within these open clusters? Um, so I, I'm really interested in this is what we refer to as galactic archaeology. So it's the idea of what tools can we use to kind of to trace back the things that there were siblings, right? And one of the ways, um, so less, so certainly dynamics, seeing if they're moving at a common distance and a common uh, speed uh, relative to one another plays a role. But over time, um, the, they drift apart. And over time, their velocities change a bit, so that you wouldn't necessarily know from their positions and velocities alone that they were associated, that they were born together. There's a possibility, but you wouldn't 100% know, right? But one of the things we're really interested in looking at is, is there markers that the stars hold on to throughout their life that you can't erase? And one of the things that they do hold on, that this is a great thing that we can use for this archaeology, is the chemistry of the stars. So the elements that are on the surface of the stars that we can measure through spectra. Um, so like the amount of iron that a star has 
uh, that we measure on its surface. They might have oxygen, magnesium, uh, other elements like this. And so one of the things we're really interested in is how unique the chemistry of stars are that are born in clusters. It seems like there's a very small spread in the chemistry that, that really all these stars are forming almost at the exact same time and almost with the exact same chemistry. Right? And so we're interested in kind of what the range in chemistry is between different clusters and whether or not that the chemistry can act like a, a fingerprint so that we could, say, look at the chemistry of these different stars and say, like, ah, you guys had to have formed from, this, from a common cloud. You guys had to have come from a same place. And we're hoping to use all these different tools. So the chemistry and then for some period of time the positions and the velocities, and also if we can get a good handle on age, we want to use all of that to see if we can backtrace stars that form together. For students interested in the STEM field, what would you recommend to get them started in their journey to be having a career? So I certainly think it's a wonderful thing to take classes, math and and science classes. On top of that, if you just want to see if research is your passion, something that has you excited, I would strongly recommend trying out citizen science projects. So there are all sorts of opportunities available online. And in particular, if anyone wants to Google uh, like Galaxy Zoo, um, that is a wonderful project that you can go to um, and read about um, the process of participating in science when you're a non-expert. All sorts of opportunities. I would encourage if you're interested in science to go online and check it out. Thank you, Sarah Loebman, for really a wonderful interview. Um, I learned a great deal, and Danny Way just had inspired questions. So thank you both so much. Tune in to Radio Physics on the fourth Tuesday of every month at 4.30. For more information about our Gopher program, of which Danny is a part, and events at the center, please visit the Aspen Center for Physics website at aspenphys.org or give me a call. Thank you, KDNK Radio, for sponsoring this program. <laughs>